Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 25, The Interception Show. Episode 25 of the Makers of Sport podcast, The Interception Show. You may notice a different voice speaking right now. That's because I'm your host for the day, Joe Bosak of Joe Bosak and Company. Today, I'm interviewing the founder and host of Makers of Sport, Adam Martin. Adam is an independent designer and creative director based out of Lexington, Kentucky. His work has garnered numerous awards from the likes of Graphic Design USA, the American Advertising Awards, formerly known as the Addies, COSIDA, and more. His independent firm, A. Martin Design, has worked with sports brands such as 3D Lacrosse, the University of Michigan Athletics, University of Kentucky Athletics, JMI Sports, his treasured alma mater, Eastern Kentucky University Athletics, and non-athletics global brands such as Pond, Equipment Depot, and the Asphalt Institute. Before relaunching back into full-time freelance in March 2013, Adam was the creative director at 15-year-old web design company in Lexington, leading the design team on a visual and user experiences on large-scale Drupal web projects. Adam is very active in the entrepreneurial community and most recently served as president of the American Advertising Federation Lexington chapter, where he is one of only four two-term presidents in the club's 65-plus year history. So Adam, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on the show, on your show, Joe. Oh, thank you. And, well, well, for the next, uh, you know, 50 minutes or so, it is, it is my show and, uh, I'm, uh, I'm gunning for your job. So look out. Yeah. I'm, I'm super worried, man. I'm, I'm super worried. <laughs> so Adam, give us a little bit of your, your background. Tell us a little bit of your story. Yes. I'd be glad to do that. So I haven't, you know, uh, as you know, uh, being a listener and also a guest, I haven't had too much of an opportunity. You know, people kind of know me a little bit, but I haven't went real in depth on my story. So I figured, you know, maybe this is a, a good opportunity to do that. So I'll go back to when I was a kid. I loved art, you know, fine art, especially drawing. And my parents bought me a little one of those old school desks at like a yard sale. You remember the old uh, elementary school desk where everything was sort of connected and wooden. And I, I, I would just draw all the time and I would make these movie posters. And I had this, uh, <laughs> I had this character that um, I called, I was a big superhero fan, comic books and that type of thing. I had this character called Captain Kill. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back at it, it's pretty, pretty bad being a kid with a, with a superhero like that. But um, I remember making a movie poster and hanging it up in my room. And so that was probably my first piece of, of real graphic design. And then as, as time progressed, I, you know, took a lot of art, you know, had my typical art classes in school. Uh, elementary school and, and middle school and, and things like that and really enjoyed drawing and really enjoyed that aspect of it. And I remember in when I was in seventh grade, we made this book. Uh, it was everyone had to sort of write their own story and write this book. And, and I wrote this book about the, me as a passionate basketball lover. 
And my favorite team at the time, which is kind of funny being from Kentucky, but I had some sort of rebellious years, but my favorite team at the time was UCLA. And so I wrote this story about me and my friends, like going to UCLA to play college basketball and sort of this whole recruiting story. And we had to do the illustrations for it and everything. And I still have it laying around my house somewhere, but that was another little sort of subliminal, I guess, piece of graphic design that I, I didn't actually know what it was, but you know, it was, it was graphic design. So, uh, I got my creativity really from my mother and my grandmother. They, they're both big time craftspeople. My grandmother makes baskets and paints and does all these things. And my mom sort of inherited that from her. And, um, my, my parents always sort of gave me this, uh, my dad never really understood it, but my, my mom always sort of gave me this, uh, ability and this, this initiative to always sort of make like these creative things. So when I was in high school, uh, I was super passionate about basketball. Like that was my number one passion. It was nothing else. I only cared about basically I ate, uh, slept and breathed basketball. And so I, I played high school sports, played soccer, my, uh, up from when I was a kid up until my freshman year and decided to, to quit to focus on basketball. And then I, I ran track and did some of the the jumping events and ran the four by one in track, but basketball was my thing. And so because basketball culture is basketball influences culture so much, I became a sneakerhead, you know, which, which was before yeah. the term sneakerhead, but I absolutely love sneakers, you know, and there was something about, you know, I remember seeing like, I subscribed to slam magazine and I remember seeing, like sometimes they do like a little article or they come out with like the kicks issue and they would interview like a sneaker designer. And I remember being like, that seems like it would be the coolest job in the world. And so I really want, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to design sneakers. Well, also I wanted to play basketball. And so my senior year, I was getting like, you know, I wasn't, I was more of a role player in our system. So it wasn't like I was a I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't like some leading scorer or whatever by any means. I mean, I was running point guard for my team and we kind of focused around a big man. Like our whole system was like a half court offense and try to get the ball in the post type deal. Um, but anyway, so I, you know, I had some small offers, nothing big, like division three schools and stuff like that to play basketball. So I decided to go to Eastern Kentucky university, which was about 45 minutes from where I grew up. My mom went there. I was familiar with it. It was a local Kentucky school. And also it was a division one college. So I was like, well, I'm going to go there and try to walk on. So I went to school and, you know, I basically, I majored in art, fine art, um, and was going to be getting a bachelor of arts in art. And they didn't have what was called in, you know, industrial design is, is the traditional path you want to go down. If you want to design like physical products, like sneakers or cars or things like that. And that was who sort of Nike and those, companies were hiring at the time. So I was like, well, I I talked to my advisor and I was like, I'll choose the next best thing, graphic design, you know? So I ended up choosing graphic design. I had no clue what it was and ended up really sort of falling in love with it. And, and honestly, like going, kind of getting back to that story of going to EKU to play basketball. When I got there, like I just, I remember getting a phone call from the coaching staff about, walk on tryouts and stuff like that. And it was like six in the morning or whatever. And I sort of had this moment where I was just like, you know what? I don't think I'm really that interested in, <laughs> in pursuing this, uh, in college. I think I want to live a little bit. So, <laughs> so, and I was already, you know, I'd already met some friends and we were having a lot of fun, you know, good old, good old college fun. Um, so, you know, I became a, I, I 
became a graphic design major and we had like it's kind of an old school teacher who taught us a lot about like we were doing like rub on letters and like she was hardcore about typography and sort of having this deep dive in that particular world but she wasn't very familiar with the digital side so we had another guy who came in who was a a practicing photographer and had done a lot of work for like um, Ted Turner and CNN and a lot of companies like that and was ran his own business. And so he taught us our software side. And so we got to be, we got to do some deep dives on Photoshop and, and illustrator and, and InDesign and InDesign actually at the time was even fairly new. This was before they even had the whole creative suite. I think it was like Photoshop seven InDesign two or something like that. Mm-hmm. So most people in the industry were still using Quark express and that type of thing. So we, we, we've, kind of barely learned Quark Express. So I was basically an average student, um, didn't, you know, having a lot of fun, didn't really care that much about this stuff, focused more on the fun than the work. <laughs> uh, so I don't have a whole lot of work from college that I would say that I'm necessarily proud of. <laughs> the life of a college freshman, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go, there you go. So, my, so about uh, my junior year, we went to this AIGA event in Cincinnati, which we're about my school is about an hour and a half from Cincinnati. So we, Cincinnati is a huge design industry there specifically more in regards to packaging design because of PNG and some of those sort of consumer brands up there. So went to Cincinnati for this AIGA event to watch our seniors because the seniors, it was required for all seniors to go to do a portfolio review. And I went up there and watched the seniors and really got to see like at the end of my junior year, how serious like this stuff was and, how passionate people were about it. So my senior year, I sort of uh, made a U-turn and, and was started, like ended up subscribing to communication arts and how magazine and, and some of those sort of public industry publications and, and really kind of doing a deeper dive on trying to understand this industry more so than, than what I was just learning in school. And I think during that time, I actually saw an article, but uh, believe it or not, I think you were in it and, <laughs> and, and it was, uh, it was about sports design. And I was like, whoa, 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 what is this? Like, this is, I didn't know that this was a thing, you know, like I knew there was sneaker design and apparel mm-hmm. design or whatever, but it's like sports branding and those types of things. And, you know, growing up a big sports fan, I mean, there was nothing to, sort of wear different hats or be a member of like a hat club for like a a company and wear like different teams, right? Just because you like the hat or the color, not necessarily because like you were a fan of that particular team. And I think that's a common thing with like people that are designers that love sports and people in sports in general. So I saw this and I was like sports branding, Joe Bosak, who is this guy? And I think I remember I looked at your site and saw some of the stuff that you had done, some of those logos that you had done for Nike uh, yep. like Georgia with the dog collar and that type of thing. And, and I was, uh, I was actually a bit of a closet Georgia football fan for some <laughs> reason. And I don't even know how this came about, but my college roommates were one of my college roommates was a huge Ohio state fan. And, uh, the other one was a Kentucky football fan. And so somehow I ended up like becoming a Georgia football fan. I think it was because of like this one particular athlete. I can't remember one of the, uh, Oh, shoot. I can't remember his name. One of the guys who uh, this guy just had because of his athletic abilities, 
he was just nasty. Like he had like a 45 inch vertical and I remember him blocking like all these punts and stuff. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's my team. Like that's who I'm going with right now. Cause I just, I, I really appreciated athleticism and athletes. Sure. Yeah. And, and as a basketball fan, I was also a big fan of and one. And so, and one came out and they really did a lot of stuff with just like, not only like the dribble and the dribbling and creativity. And I remember this guy named hot sauce and that type of thing, but just the artwork, like the covers of their, DVDs or like their t-shirts and, and apparel. It was all like this basketball art. And I was like, this stuff is super cool. So then sort of tying it all back into graphic design. So it was like, well, I think I would like to work in sports if that's possible. And so I graduated my senior year. I had this internship at this small boutique advertising agency in, in Lexington. I was doing a bunch of car ads and things like that. And I had a, actually had the great pleasure of working underneath a, a lady whose name was Yoshika Azuma, and she was a, a Japanese graphic designer who went to Virginia Commonwealth, which was one of the top design schools in the country. And so she became like a stickler on, she was a stickler on typography. And she helped me to sort of go even deeper in typography and paying attention to those types of things and, and even grow more passionate about this stuff. But at the same time, like I was making car ads and things like that. So it wasn't something that it was like super pumped up to do, but I was in college and I was like, man, I'm getting paid to do this. So this is awesome regardless, right? Like I could be the year before I was like bagging groceries at Kroger. So this is like <laughs> a huge, a, a huge step up. Right. So I was, I started off there as a free intern convinced them that if they wanted more from me that I needed to, they needed to pay me because I also, what, when I was free, when it was a free internship, I was doing like 40 hours a week during the summer at this internship and then going and working at Kroger like all weekend. So on Fridays I would go like nine to six and I'd go, and then I would go to Kroger and, uh, which for international listeners, I don't know. I don't think it's like a necessarily global brand, but it's sort of like, a, it's a grocery store, like in the U S and, I convinced them that like I basically had no life. So it was like 40 hours a week on Fridays. I would go from nine to six and then I would go straight to Kroger and work until like 12 o'clock. And then I would come back in at 7 a.m. on on Saturday mornings. And I was like, finally, I was just like, screw this, man. Like, I can't do that. This is my senior year. Like, I'm getting to enter my senior year. I got to have a life too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Affects everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I convinced them to pay me part time and they gave me like $8 and 50 cents an hour, which I think at Kroger, I was making like $6 and 15 cents. So to me, I was like, oh yeah, dude, I'm banking. I'm banking in the money right now. This is great. <laughs> and so I did that and graduated and they didn't have enough um, work to actually bring me on full time. So I had to start, you know, jumping into figuring out like what's next and the whole interview world. So I, I interviewed at all these places in Cincinnati and places around Lexington and finally ended up landing a gig, which the whole serendipitous part to this was I was really wanting to go to Cincinnati and I, and I ended up not getting hired by any of the companies there, but serendipitously I got hired by this company called host communications in Lexington. And all I knew about that company at the particular, particular time was that if, if I listened to a Kentucky basketball game on the radio, it was basically that was who did it. It was like host communications and the big blue sports network. And so I was like, well, these guys do like Kentucky sports stuff. So that's pretty cool. But then when I got in there and they, and the, and my creative director there showed me some of the work they were working on. I mean, it was like Florida state and like Texas and all these major college athletics brands. And I was like, dude, I had no clue. I mean, I had absolutely no clue that this was the type of stuff that they did. And yeah, right in your backyard too. Yeah, right? no. And that was, that was perfect. So, so I got hired there, went in there, did a couple of uh, smaller, got kind of my feet wet 
so to speak, doing some some smaller schools, uh, doing like game program covers, and we would do like design like the formats. We call them the formats. So basically, we would design like the style or not the style, but like the master pages of a mm-hmm. and sending them, send them over to editors. Uh, the master pages of a Quark Express document and send them over to editors and then they would fill in like the actual content when it came in later or when it was written. And so I got to, uh, I started with some super small schools and then I eventually moved into becoming the the guy that was doing a lot of stuff for the Southeastern Conference and became sort of the lead designer for the Southeastern Conference, which was cool because that's where, you know, that's sort of where I grew up in the Southeastern Conference, SEC tournament, you know, SEC football championships and that type of thing. And, and then Kentucky being in the, in the Southeastern Conference. So funny enough, I was talking to TJ Harley, who's a future guest and who, you know, really well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But he was at uh, in the sports. So at the time, I think it was, um, what was it like the, I can't remember the, that department, but they're the ones that sort of the collegiate licensing division, basically. Yeah, the, yeah, CLC, the collegiate licensing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. CLC yeah. was actually owned, like none of this was like IMG yet. It was it was all sort of like partnered up or owned through host or something like that. And so I actually stumbled across some of his work and we kind of, and I was, we were talking about this recently, but I used some of his logos like in some of these championship programs and things like that. So it, it was cool to see that and to kind of do this work. But you know, it's funny, I took it all for granted and I was kind of like, because I think I was just so young. I mean, I was 21, 22 working on these big brands and, and, you know, all my friends were doing like, you know, local car dealership ads or whatever, or working at like a sign shop. And here I am doing all this big stuff. And I was just like, whatever, man, like, I, you know, it's just part of work and that type of thing. So <laughs> after about, I was there for about a year and a half. And towards the end, I, I got super burnt out because we worked like in an insane amount of hours. And especially during the NCAA tournament, which I love college basketball. It's, it's, it's my number one thing. I, I talk a lot about college football and stuff, which I, I really love football. But college basketball, like that's my thing. And so I wasn't getting to actually experience and watch this thing that I love because we were working on it so much. And I remember doing a, having to go and stay, pull an all-nighter at a, at a printer in, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, because we were printing the game programs for like the NCAA tournament. And so like, you know, you would have the games for today and then the games for tomorrow. And then we would have to go up there and pull these all-nighters to get like the proper information from the thing from yesterday to be printed for the next day and be shipped out, you know? So it was, it was a crazy, crazy time. And isn't that funny though, how that, how that works out? I mean, you're a huge sports fan, you love sports and you're, you're engrossed in it, not only in your free time, but also in your professional life. And, uh, and you get to a point where, it becomes, uh, you know, really a real difficult thing to sort of balance the two of them. I mean, I, I've had those that experience as well, where you know, I'll be sitting watching a sporting event on the weekends, and you know, I can't focus on the game because I'm looking at that logo at midfield and saying, "Man, I could have done a better job with that." You know, it's a, it's almost right. like a sense, almost like a source of anxiety. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird kind of dynamic, a weird feeling. You know? Yeah, totally. But, but and- I get it. I get it. Yeah, I live it. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I was actually to the point where I was sick of sports. Like I didn't want to like I didn't want to watch anything. I didn't want to watch Sports Center. Like I didn't go to any football games like I was done. Like when I got out of when I got out of work, it was I didn't want anything to do with it. Because what happened, too, was like not only was 
not only were you ingrained, deeply ingrained in these sports related projects, but it was all people talked about. Like literally it was like right. people had no identity outside of sports and I just got so burnt out. And so I decided, well, um, I'm going to quit and I have no clue what I'm going to do next. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, because I didn't want to cause a lot of animosity, like, where are you going? I knew I'd get the questions like, where are you going next? And all this stuff. And I didn't want to be convinced to stay. I basically told him and made up and was like, well, I'm going to freelance full time. And that was my story. And I remember like this big email went out to the comp, to the, you know, company wide, like, you know, let's thank Adam. He's, you know, great time here, blah, blah, blah. Like he's leaving to pursue his dream of being a full time <laughs> freelancer. <laughs> and I was like, and none of this stuff was like actually true at the time. Like it was just sort of like, that's just what I told them because I, I didn't want to get the questions or be convinced to stay. Right. And so I quit. And luckily for me, that company that I was doing some stuff for initially as an internship, they had their designer, that Japanese girl had left and moved on to another company and they needed some people to do some work. So I, I started doing some work with them and it was super cheap. But I think I was charging like, um, I think initially when I was doing stuff for them, I was doing, it was like $35 an hour or something like that. And then I think I bumped it up when I left the job. I was like, I'm going to do, I need to do like $45 an hour. Right. Mm -hmm. I was thinking like, Oh, that's a lot, <laughs> which <laughs> no, we both know that's not a lot at all. Right. And, and so I was doing some stuff for them and I was basically done with sports. I, I was, I wanted more commercial work and more like, you know, consumer brand type work and that type of thing. Like I was, I didn't want to do any more sports stuff because I was so burnt out. And so what happened though, was because I was sort of in that world and, you know, you sort of network with people and know people and that type of thing. And people know you're where you were from and they sort of trust where you came from because there were former employees from that company that went on and launched other things. And so I, this sports stuff kept coming to me, it kept falling in my lap and like, I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> and so a lot of it, like I, I turned down and then some of it I would occasionally take on and, and because I needed to make the money. But so about three years full time, that, that little stint ended up turning into basically six years full time freelance. So three years in, you know, I'm learning a little bit as I go. My first year, I was absolutely poverty stricken. I think I made like $18,000. Like it was a joke. <laughs> and, and then like the next year I had a pretty big jump pretty decent jump where I wasn't necessarily at, I think I was maybe right at about what my salary was at, at the, the company. And so then it kind of started going up every year and I was like, Oh, this is sort of a, this is a viable thing. Like I can actually make a living doing this. And so I basically as a happy accident, just stuck with it and kept doing it. And then the more I did it, the more I fell in love with it. And the more I started to study business and learn about business and think, wow, like, like this is a whole world that just I feel like makes sense for me. Not only from uh, just being my own boss and 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 that type of thing, but I always felt like a weirdo because I never really wanted to. I didn't really like this idea that you spend your early years basically working your tail off, and then in your later years, if you're lucky, you can go to f move to Florida or whatever and play golf like every day. <laughs> and I was like, why can't we do that stuff now? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's crazy that that this is sort of this system that we're we're basically born into. And so it, it wasn't until I started seeing some other entrepreneurs and hearing their stories and thinking like, oh, I'm actually not weird at all. 
this is just the way that I was grown up and was taught. And that's just, that's what you do. You go get a job, you work 40 hours a week for 40 years, and then you retire hopefully, and you get a watch, you know, or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And move to Florida. Exactly. (laughs) You know? And, uh, and, and then when I saw other entrepreneurs and I saw people that were like night owls like myself and they wanted to control their own schedules and that type of thing. And and so it it made me feel like there was this community, you know, and then especially when social media came out and you started to see other people and really connect with other people and see the things that they were doing. So, so I kept doing that for six years, about three years in, I had this epiphany where I was like, you know, I'm still kind of grinding it out. And I was saying yes to everything. And I would end up getting these horrible projects with horrible clients that just nickeled and dimed you to death. And one day I just decided I'm going to I guess for lack of a better word, I'm going to actually approach this stuff as a professional and not just like some dude doing graphic design freelance stuff. And so I started saying no to things. And it was funny, the first time I said no to a client, like the guy looked at me like, you, you can't say no to me. Like you, you have to take this work. And it was like, no, I don't. <laughs> and, and, and when I did that, like things changed, like my mindset changed. And it was like, no, I'm providing a valuable service here. And if you don't appreciate the value then I'm not going to work with you. And so I started and you, it sort of became like a, a poker game in a sense, because I started to bluff on certain things like, you know, I really needed this money, but I, I took gambles on, on the word, on, on quoting things and walking in very confidently and saying like, it's going to cost this. And, and if it was a sicker shock to them, just being confident about it and being like, no, that's what it's worth. Because I truly fundamentally believe like what I was providing was worth that. And when I started doing that, things changed tremendously. I think that's really interesting too, because, you know, oftentimes designers, especially young designers, one of the most difficult aspects of freelancing or running their own business is being able to price their work uh, effectively, not only for uh, what it's worth uh, to them, but what, what, what it's worth to the client, what the, the value that it brings to the client. And I think a lot of people, and I don't understand why it is, but a lot of designers are often intimidated uh, to, to ask for uh, a fair price that uh, that the, that that truly values the work. It's it's a it's a strange thing, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, totally agree. And and it almost becomes like the shark in the water mentality. Like they they smell blood from like the green freelancer, and it's like, right. oh yeah, we're gonna right. we're gonna milk this guy for all he's worth, right? Right. And then right. if you come in with a completely different mindset, it's like, oh. And then I started to realize like negotiating and things like that were just a part of business. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. a malicious thing. You know, like there was nothing wrong if I came back and said, I can't do it for that. I need to do it for this. It wasn't an argument, right? Like it was, that's just business. And learning that was huge. And so things started to change for me. And also with the sort of uh, um, the beginning of Twitter and, and that world, I think that was around 2007 in that area somewhere. And so 2007, 2008. And so, you know, starting to connect with other entrepreneurs and seeing what they were doing and really kind of getting into the startup world a little bit and seeing some of those things and thinking like, I want to, not only do I want to do things that are, you know, design related and perform these design services, but I want to make other things too. So when the iPhone came out, I had the, and they, and they came out with the app store. I had this idea that um, myself and my friends would usually go to one away game every year for, for Kentucky football. And we would go to the city and like, we would do all this research beforehand. Like, where do we go? Like, where's the best, you know, where are the best bars to go to? Like, what do you, where do you park 
as a guest, like what are the tailgating rules, like those types of things. And so we would have to research that stuff all the time. So I had this idea that I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to gather this information since I'm doing it anyway. I'm going to put it out there as an app in the app store. So I partnered with this guy who was wanting to learn how to do iPhone development. And I designed this interface and I came up with this idea called tailgate the SEC. And so my idea was actually scale this thing into other things like tailgate the big 10 tailgate, you know, the ACC and really kind of blow it up that way. But the, the SEC was my thing. and I knew the SEC was a very well-traveled conference in regards to football. So I spent all this time putting that out there and I think I charged like 99 cents for it. And I remember like in my head, I was like, yeah, this thing's going to make like millions of dollars. <laughs> of, course, of course it is. How could it go wrong? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so what happens is, is, you know, you put it in the app store and it was cool to learn that experience, like the Apple processes of how to get something in the app store and designing interfaces and that type of thing. And what was funny, it was actually ended up being one of the most un-Apple experiences I've ever went through because I remember we had to fax things into Apple. And I was like, fax? I don't, like, I don't even have a fax machine. You know, like, <laughs> why do I have to fax something to Apple? It's supposed to be like a super technology-driven company. <laughs> so I had to use my mom's, like, my mom worked at an elementary school and I had to, like, have her fax it from her school <laughs> and like wait for stuff to come back. So anyway, I put this app out there and then it was sort of like crickets. I mean, I had like a couple friends purchase the app or whatever, like Facebook friends and that type of thing. But you know, like if you don't market the thing, it's not going to go anywhere. And to be quite honest with you, like it wasn't that good. Like, because we were, we were learning, you know, we were learning, but I think that's the whole thing is it was a learning experience. And so we eventually decided to sort of disband the thing because we were losing passion in it and all that stuff. So then like about a year later, a friend of mine and I had this idea to start like a t-shirt company and we wanted to make better. You have all these t-shirt companies in these small towns that are doing like, you know, licensed college gear and the designs are usually terrible. And so we had this idea to do something completely different. So we started this thing called Kentucky game gear. And that was another thing we were playing the scale to do like Tennessee game gear, uh, you know, like Ohio game gear and that type of thing. Well, it turns out like once we started to kind of doing deeper dives on the licensing things, it's really tough to get a, like a license from the schools because t-shirt shops are like a dime a dozen. So you really have to do something different. And another right. problem was we had to actually have a proven history. So we had to sell, buy wholesale shirts from these companies that I thought were bad designs and sell them. And so like all my friends, you know, I didn't want people to associate me with that work. Right. But we had to sell the stuff because you, we had to have a proven track record that it was a business and wasn't just some like fun thing. So we went, the UK won the national championship. We bought a ton this was 2012. Yeah, 2012. UK won the national championship. We bought a ton of shirts, sold them like crazy, like in this uh, empty parking lot <laughs> back in my hometown. And then we decided to like buy, take that money, buy more shirts. Well, you know, like we should have just kept the money because like after we bought more shirts, it was like you, those things only go for so long. Like eventually right, everybody gets their, right. their, gets their championship T-shirt and they don't need another one. So we basically disbanded that thing. And and the reason why I'm telling those two stories is because of sort of like the whole failure thing and not being afraid to kind of jump out and just do something and and take a gamble. And luckily for me this whole time, like I was still freelancing, like that was my money, but I was using the money from that to sort of fund like these other things. So back in 2000, at the end of 2012, I was, I was 29 years old. I was getting ready to turn 30 and I had now been freelancing full-time for six years. And I thought what's next for me? Like, do I want to be like a, a 50 year old freelancer, right? Like, is that a viable thing, you know, or is that just like, you haven't had a job for 30 years or whatever. 
So I was approached by a guy who I knew in, in Lexington who wanted me to come on and, and bring my clients on and be their creative director at this web company. And I knew I wanted to kind of jump a lot more into digital. And so we kind of went through some, some negotiations and, and I sort of had this number in my head and I was like, if they hit that number then I know I'm supposed to go. So they came in, I think it was like $10,000 less. And I was like, I finally just shot them straight and was like, listen, you know, in my head, like if you hit this number, like I'm, I'll sign, like we're in. And so he was like, all right, let me talk to my people. And he came back and he was like, that's it. So I went there and worked on some, you know, cool digital projects for a year and really kind of did a deep dive on learning processes of like how to make responsive, responsibly designed websites and apps and things like that. And working very closely with developers and made some great friends there from the developer side. But about halfway through my time there, I started to just become uh, miserable Uh, And it wasn't because of the work and it wasn't because of the people. It was sort of like, I felt like I wasn't fulfilling this, this entrepreneurial, uh, scratching this entrepreneurial itch, you know, like I think during the six years that I'd done that thing, I was fulfilling this entrepreneurial itch sort of subconsciously. And now that I took this job, you know, that wasn't there anymore. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And, and it was really starting to affect my attitude. Like I was becoming kind of a jerk, like, (laughs) both at work and like at home, you know, I was bringing like just extra stress home and that type of thing. So finally me and the guy, like we became, we we were, we were decently close before the the founder of this company. And we, we became a little closer and I kind of opened up to him eventually was like, look, man, I just don't know like if this is for me, you know, and, and it's been great working with everybody, but I think, you know, I need to kind of move out and do my own thing again. And I have no clue what's coming next. And I sort of was getting really comfortable with the salary and that type of thing. And there's something about that hunt, kill, eat thing that I think really internally drives me that I was finding wasn't there for me at this particular company. So in uh, January of uh, 2014, yeah, 2014, um, I talked to those guys, decided they were going to phase me out. I was going to work full time for February. And then in March, I was going to work, we were going to cut my hours in half and I was going to work like remotely, uh, come in like every once in a while. And eventually, so in, at the end of February, the guy was like, you know what? I think we could probably do this. Like, if you want to just like, let's just jump off the cliff. Like, don't worry about March. Then, then let's do this. So, so I, I basically separated from the company then and went back out on my own. And I wrote this blog post on Tumblr about how, you know, I was an entrepreneur and I wanted to do these things on my own. And I was going to completely rebrand myself, like from this freelancer that was doing a Martin design, which I, I know we sort of in, introduced myself as that from the beginning. But like I am actually going through a rebranding right now that's sort of internal and, and ideation and that, that type of thing. Rebranding is actually mountain mountain and company, which is MTN and co, which is sort of, a, uh, I'll kind of get into that when all that launches, but so that's, that's coming soon. But also decided like, just to kind of drive myself to be uncomfortable. I was like, I consume podcasts like crazy. I'm going to start a podcast. And so because this sports stuff had always kind of fallen coming to my direction, I was like, maybe I'm going to pick this stuff back up again. And this is, I think this is what I'm supposed to do, you know? And so I had this idea for podcasts about the intersection of like sports and design and creativity. And at the time, like there wasn't anything about that. Right. And so not only did I want to have those conversations, but I wanted to have those conversations at a super high level, not just like this completely subjective, what's your favorite logo 
you know, BS. Like, right. <laughs> I wanted right. to talk to people like you and really get behind the scenes and, and say, you know, and also give like people like yourself a platform to really let people know what you do from that deep level as opposed to like you're not just making logos. What you're doing is this heavily strategic identity system development, right? Right, yeah. It's, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, you're, you're – you know, I would have thought that that going from that from designer to app developer to T-shirt producer to podcast host would be a pretty um, circuitous kind of route in your career. But it seems it seems like going from the from designer to podcast is a pretty seamless kind of a thing, since you're you know, you're really talking about the things that that you're doing it's uh it doesn't seem like it's too much of a jump to toggle between the two yeah and and that's what's been very serendipitous about this whole thing is because i think what i found was luckily i was very fortunate to have known you for a while and we we'd had conversations mm-hmm. before so obviously mm-hmm. you agreeing to come on the show gave the show immediate credibility right <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate that. I very much appreciate that. I'd also met Todd before. So mm-hmm. Todd coming on the show also added to that. And then I had some people I was connected to on Twitter and, you know, hey, you want to come on the show? You want to come on the show? And then it, it, it snowballed a little bit. And that was that was awesome. But the thing that's cool is that now not only was I a designer, but there's this interesting thing that I now can put on my LinkedIn profile or whatever that people I think genuinely are interested in when I connect to like a design director at Nike or whatever. And it's like, well, I think most independent designers are probably not going to have a good connection rate and things like that. Because like how many designers try to connect to like the creative directors at Nike or whatever, right? But here's this guy who's a designer and he's also the founder of Makers of Sport. Well, now I'm, now I'm interested. What's Makers of Sport, right? So right. now you look and you see, and then it's like, oh, look at the guests. And then, and then you see like that type of thing. And and just being a designer too, like I designed the website. I spent the month of March in 2014 and, and I took on no client work and I literally just grinded it out every single day, making the site and then making the logo. And then it was like, well, now I have to do this. I have to put this out into the world now because I've told people I'm going to do it. And, and I made a site <laughs> and now it's like, you know, I have to do it. So I put out that first episode which was me sort of riffing for like 15 minutes and it was terrible. <laughs> and, and then like, you know, you just learn and you, and, and I think the beautiful thing is there's this guy who I was following at the time. His name was Sean McCabe. He's a hand letterer in Austin, Texas. And I've, I've mentioned him a couple of times on the show and he was putting out this podcast. There were two things that sort of happened that made me decide to do this. One was Sean McCabe. He, he had this phrase that he said that really stuck with me. And he said the difference between us him and his co-hosts and people that don't have a podcast are that we are willing to put things out into the world that are imperfect and iterate in public. And I was like, man, that is beautifully said. So that's what I'm going to do. So I'm putting things out to the world that are imperfect and we're iterating in public and you know, we're getting better every single episode getting better. And then there was another guy by the name of Alexis Ohanian. He's one of the co-founders of Reddit. And he wrote a book called Without Their Permission. And so I was reading Without Their Permission. It was basically the whole premise behind that book was that there aren't many gatekeepers nowadays in the world of entrepreneurship. You could launch a business and launch something from your house without asking people for permission. Independent filmmakers are making films. They're raising money on Kickstarter, you know, that type of thing. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and that was it. So it was like, I'm going to do this. And I did it. And, and I think my knowledge and my just being a student of design and of branding and of strategy and entrepreneurship 
and, and reading so many books and just consuming so much about this stuff enabled me to have really good conversations with people and ask really good questions. And I think the thing that is the beautiful thing about getting guests that come onto the show that are very talented and very smart is that it helps position them almost even better because they're now able to really talk about what they do at a high level, even at a level that honestly, like there's probably a lot of people that listen to the show or maybe start listening to the show. They don't understand a lot of the concepts and things that we talk about from a strategy level. Right. Right. And, and I, and that was the whole, the whole idea was like, I want to have these conversations at a high level. And, and that's, I've been very fortunate to be able to do that. And, and, you know, honestly, because of that, this show, even people that are maybe immensely talented at, at design or at like a particular craft, the show itself is probably still not for everybody. Because if you're not able to have those conversations, two things, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to be positioned as the very intelligent person that you are, or you're going to be positioned as someone that doesn't really know what they're doing. Yeah, right. You yeah. know, and, and so that sort of leads us really to where we are today with Makers of Sport. And it's becoming this thing. And, you know, I set up an LLC and it's, this is sort of my passion project. But this passion project feeds other projects, feeds other, other things. Because it, it, like what you're saying earlier, this actually is a circuitous thing where it's like now I went full force into sports. And the whole like Todd Radom said, you know, niches to riches kind of thing. And that stuck with me. And there's all these like things about vertical markets and that type of thing. And, and now it's like, I love it because I think having that break from it was, it was a great thing. But now also realizing that it's not just about the design. It's about many more things that I'm passionate about. And so what I do is not just this one particular thing. I get to do many, many different projects in the creative world and sports and, and it's been awesome, you know, and, and talking to people that are doing many different things like branding people and augmented reality. And there's so much opportunity here. And I think it's a great time to be working in this particular niche. Uh, I totally, well, I, I totally agree. I think that you, know, you and I touched on this when we first talked, um, I don't know, episode two or three or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about how you know, sports designers, at least from my perspective, and it's been my experience, have, are, are oftentimes on the fringe of the design community. And I think that in a lot of ways, it's in, due in large part to, to the work. I mean, the work is all centered around a game. It's not, um, you, you know, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, the quote unquote serious issues that we, we deal with. It's, a, it's to some degree um, perceived as a little bit tri- trivial. And I think because of that, uh, you know, designers at large, the, you know, the, what I often refer to as the highbrow designers sometimes look at sports designers as, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a little bit of a lesser, lesser class, if you will. And, and you and I both know that that's not true. And I think one of the things that's really cool about the podcast is that you're really exposing people to, uh, who, who people that I think are really just bright people, intelligent people that do some really great work, um, and, and really calculated and strategic work. I mean, an industry that, um, uh, doesn't necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily couple up with, uh, with those highbrow designers, you know, guys, guys like Todd Radom. I mean, he's just a super smart dude, uh, really knows what he's doing. Fraser Davidson is just, I mean, uh, uh, he, he might be the most talented designer working today. Just a really bright guy. Right. Um, you know, these, these are people that have, um, 
that that deserve the the spotlights that uh, that they're in, and and even broader, even broader than that. So that's one of the things that I think is interesting about the show is that you sort of bring light to um, this uh, this industry in a really smart and and intelligent way. Yeah. But but you know, so so that that's I'm I'm sort of curious, Adam. You know, because of that. How you know how does how does the interviews and and connecting with with other creatives in the sports industry? I mean, how how does that influence your work, if at all? I mean, does do you, do you find that it influences the way you do things, or or the way that you're designing, or or any of those things? Because the conversations are always great and they're always insightful. Do you do you sort of pull stuff out of there for your your personal work? Yeah, you know that's a that's a really good question, and I think that. It's sort of a little bit of everything because over, over time, you know, and talking to many different people is you really see that many people do things differently and they've had success at doing things differently. And I think one of the biggest problems with design or with the creative industries is that we, we always tend to try to put things in a box. Right. And it's like, this is the way it should be done every single time. And then you start to see like, well, this person's had success this way and this person's had success this way. So then I think what happens is you start to start to cherry pick what works for you. And that's sort of how I've always developed my business strategies and sort of ideas on entrepreneurship or just the way that I do things is that, you know, by consuming a lot of content, I start to see these patterns of things. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. like I may not agree with everything, but it's like, oh, here's a here's a thing that seems like it's sort of as similar to this other thing. So maybe that's the direction I'm going to go in for that because I believe in that particular thing. So that's been the thing that's been really cool about this is really seeing how people do things differently and how there's not one way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, you know, that, that certainly is evident by the broad range of, of people that you've had on the show. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways to, uh, to not only solve a problem, but lots of different ways to, to be creative, uh, be creative in the sports world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, and that was another reason for the show as well. Another goal is that I think we always tend to, and I used to be this as well. We always tend to default to a couple of things in the sports world when it comes to, when you think about sports design. So I think when you think about sports design, you automatically think about sports branding. That's a given. That's a huge one and a very mm-hmm. important one. And then maybe you think about uniform design, which you could really tie into sports branding because it's all a part of branding. And then you maybe think about people that are working in-house at universities or whatever, and they're doing sort of the social media graphics and, and things like that. And so what I wanted to do was really kind of give show some people like Warstick Bat Company or uh, right. my, my next guest, Bethany Heck, who I'll talk about in a little bit, but people that are making things, physical things, products that they can sell that are sports related, you know, and not just necessarily if you want to work in the sports industry, you don't have to just design brand identity systems for like major pro teams, right? Like, cause the chances are you're probably not going to get that work. That's just, that's tough. I mean, if you think about how hard it is to get into the NBA, how many players are in the NBA, right? Well, how many designers are in the front office of NBA teams? Even less. Oh, yeah. Oh, (laughs) yeah. So it may even be harder to get sports design work than from pro teams than to make it to the NBA. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's totally true. And I think it's really interesting. You know, you mentioned earlier um, when you were talking about your background that it, it, you you didn't know that um, 
that sort of the design world and the sports world could come together. Um, I, I had a very similar experience when I was uh, coming out of art school in, in the early 90s. You know, I didn't know that you could make a career in the, in the sports world. And, you know, you, you mentioned that having that sort of same, same feeling. And I think that's one of the things that I find interesting about the work that you're doing, particularly around the podcast, is that you're exposing people to all of this opportunity to get creative um, in an industry that, Frankly, a lot of us, you know, a lot of us love sports. So uh, to find different ways to do it. And, and you're right. I think a lot of people sort of focus on the branding and the identity development and those sorts of things. And those projects are just sort of a small piece of, uh, of being creative in the sports world. So I think that's really, really fascinating. Right. And even in the startup world and paying attention to a lot of things that are happening in the Silicon Valley. And I, I tend to nerd out on that type of stuff too, like in, in terms of who's, who's raised investment and reading TechCrunch and those types of things. But you don't see a lot of those people focusing on this particular niche. Uh, right. It's always like they want to make the next Facebook. What's the next Facebook? But the thing is, is there's a ton of money in sports. We know that. Mm. There's a ton of money in sports business. And, you know, I went to a couple of years ago, I went to a conference and it was it, actually it was COSIDA. It was a sports information directors mm-hmm. conference. And I remember walking through the trade show booths and seeing some of the things, whether it was website companies or whatever. And and a lot of these companies in in this in this world tend to make people sign like these proprietary like ten year contracts. And so what happens? Technology changes so fast. You know, imagine if you sign a ten year contract as a school. Uh, let's just take college for example. You sign a ten year contract with a web design company. You can't get out of that contract for ten years. Right. Imagine how quickly web the web changes in one year nowadays. Let alone ten. So what happens is is like this company will have hundreds of clients, like literally hundreds. And, and in my opinion, like it's tough to serve every single one of those people. So what they do is they kind of just template out these things exactly, and, yeah. and everything looks the same and, and the technology doesn't change fast enough. So when I started going and seeing all that stuff and, and I can't, um, you know, I can't fault the founders of those companies at all because they're killing it. They're making a lot of money, but they, uh, there's, I think that there's opportunities for other ways to do things. And especially like when I was seeing like software that is tracking statistics at games is absolutely right. ridiculous. Like you go, I went to a, I visited, I visited a division three school recently and they were using a software that was running on Microsoft DOS. Right. And I'm like, this is yeah. 2015. <laughs> this is insane. And, mm-hmm. the, and the, and the reason why is because nobody's ever done anything different. I mean, it's like, well, that's what we've always used and nobody's come in with something better. And that's why I think that there's this great opportunity for people to think outside the box of, of the traditional means of sports. Like, because, you know, the reality is, is sports branding isn't for everybody. I mean, we see people posting, um, you know, somebody that's a super talented illustrator and they can post really good work that still doesn't mean you're going to get hired by a school to do work because I think that we, we obviously we learned from your show and, and other people's shows is that it's more than just about making something that's really good. It's about the strategy side and what you're doing is you're developing the system that's going to be used for a long time. And that's why right. things like dribble comments on whether someone likes your logo doesn't matter. 
Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I know that exactly. you, you see a lot of that and, and people that put your, you know, anybody that puts your work on a pedestal or, or any, anybody like yourself that is doing work that for, for division one colleges and things like that, that's put on a pedestal, it's going to get feedback. And it's like, well, this is already done. Like this is, this, we're not actually asking for feedback. <laughs> right. 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 We've yeah, had that's plenty the, of that's feedback the from the stakeholders involved. <laughs> yeah. And that's the nature of it too. I mean, it's, it, these things are done, you know, years in advance. So we're way beyond, uh, beyond those stages. You know, I think you, what you, you mentioned dribble and I think, you know, you're, you're really good at, um, uh, being active with, uh, with your social media and, and on Twitter and on dribble and, and, and those sorts of things. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole thing. I mean, I, I might be a little bit late to the party. I, I'm a little bit older than, um, than you and probably, probably, well, maybe with the exception of Todd, probably most of your, your guests, no offense, Todd, but, uh, <laughs> Uncle but, Todd, right? Isn't that Uncle Todd, yeah, Uncle Todd, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, you know, but I, I'm fascinated with the whole thing. And, and one of the things that really blows me away, we, I was at Creative South last year with, um, with our, our team that worked on this NCAA project. And, and it, what, what fa- one of the things that, that just blew me away is there was, uh, I can't remember who it was, but one of the presenters was talking about um, the importance of, you know, likes and shares and retweets. And, and it was really, they were really talking about it like a, like a social currency, you know, and how, how valuable those things are to a designer. And it just blew me away at like how, how much designers value those things above all else. And, and I don't know, I, I'm curious to get your, your perspective on it since you're so involved in that world. But it seems to me like, if you're designing for likes or designing for shares or designing for retweets, you might not be on strategy with the particular needs of the client or the particular needs of the project. So I think it's, I think it's really, really interesting. I'd be, I'd be curious to hear your, uh, your thoughts on it. Yeah. I think you and I probably would tend to agree in that world. Like, honestly, for me, I think Dribble is a great platform. And I think that Dan Cedarhome and and uh, his his co-founder have done a great job with that and making a business out of that particular thing. Um, but for me, and I know that some people put a lot of weight in it. I mean, we've seen people that post things consistently and it's really good work and they get other work from, you know, internal design teams and internal startups and whatever and those types of things. Most of the people that I've heard uh, or know personally that have gotten work from Dribble have come from other designers that were outsourcing some particular thing. And I think right. that we, we, what we tend to not think about is that it depends on what your market is and what's the type of work you're trying to do. Um, I don't think that Dribble is probably that important for, for probably your work, right? Because right. Yeah. how many sports uh, athletic directors are scouring Dribble, right? Like, Probably none, <laughs> maybe oh, one none. or two, yeah, yeah. you know? Well, yeah, and, right. and, and so it's like, well, do you want to work in the startup world? Do you want to do icon illustrations for Facebook? Then make icon illustrations and put them on Dribble because that's where Facebook's design team is looking for talent, right? But at the right. same time, like if you are an entrepreneur and you're making things and you're concerned about not just making what's what the hottest visual piece of, of style is, Dribble is, is not that important for you. And, and right. but I think it's a great place to sort of like for inspiration and I, like I'm not anti dribble by any means, but I think there are a lot of people that put way too much weight in dribble. And oh, yeah, for me, yeah. it's just not that important. For me, it's been about relationships. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I'm not at all anti-dribble. I mean, I, I like I put a lot of stuff up there and, um, you know, everybody wants to have their work loved. So it's always nice to see lots of views and lots of likes and stuff like that. It's just I think it's sort of disturbing at how that some designers just put so much value in it that it sort of consumes the the way that they work and, and, the, and the work that they're doing. Um, it just seems I don't know. It just seems sort of. Uh, uh, kind of a, a, an odd, uh, an odd approach, you know? To- yeah, no, I agree. And I think honestly, um, you know, we talk about like dribble fame and whatever, and that type of thing. And I think if you look at the people that truly have like tons and tons of followers, a lot of times it's because they do one thing and they do that one thing really well. So if yeah. you're not interested in doing one thing, then dribble's not going to be a lot of benefit for you. Like for me, yeah. I like doing a lot of things. I mean, in the last couple of months, things that I've worked on, UI for a website, packaging design, like all, and this is all like in the sports industry. Um, so dribble for me is not something that, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. Like I think it would be awesome to have like thousands and thousands of followers. And I know there's great success stories from dribble, but I don't, I don't like just doing one thing. You know, yeah, and I yeah. think some people like, uh, you know, Frazier is super talented. We've seen what he does, what he, what he d- has done on dribble. And, um, he's been able to kind of branch out and do like many different styles and things now. Right. Which is, which is cool. But I think his initial, uh, I think on his, on his initial episode, he was referring to how a lot of the stuff he was doing that got him with a lot of the followers was the sports branding yeah. things yeah. right yeah so yeah. then like once you build that following and now you can kind of like branch out and like well now i want to do like this thing and this thing and this thing and and not lose people or whatever but you know it, i think it's to each their own i mean you know for me i mean i, I know some people use behance like behance is a huge platform yeah. for some people and I, like quite frankly like i think i've i've posted like three things to behance and i think it ends it ends up becoming tough because it's like well, do you want to post things where other people are at and where the person that's looking for you is probably price shopping and they're asking 10 different people, what do you charge, right? Like, is that the type of client you want to work with? Then that's fine. Those places are for you. But if that's not the type of client you want to work with and you want to focus on delivering value that's not necessarily a monetary thing, you know, I think that you need to focus on building relationships and, and proving your worth in those ways as opposed to designers are a dime a dozen. I mean, there are tons of designers that are really like, who's the best designer in the world, right? Like we probably can't name one because there are hundreds that are about the same level and maybe one's a little bit better than the other one. You know what I'm saying? So the way that we distinguish ourselves, I believe, is through our personalities and sort of our worldviews. And, and then also like our skill sets come in at a later date, but like how comfortable can you make the person you're working with in regards to them being able to trust you and executing something that's going to be good for them? I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that that personality goes a lot further, um, uh, with, with designers than a lot of people may, um, may think. And I think that, you know, a lot of times the, the, the work that we do and, and the level of the work that we do the, or the quality of the work that we do is it's really sort of inherent in our DNA. You know, it, it, a lot of times you either have it or you don't. And it's, it's uh, it's sort of a difficult thing to put your finger on, but I just know that like some of the most successful designers I know, uh, either they, they're the only people that can do what they do because it's, it's so ingrained in, uh, in who they are. Yeah. 
Right. You know, and, and here's the thing too. I think it, it all depends on what you want to do. Like if you want to design icons at Google, you know, then by all means go do that. That's go to dribble, make icons every day. Someone will discover you and someone will, will hire you, right? If the work's good and if you get better at it, but you know, that's not for everybody. I mean, for me, like certain things are become almost factory, like, like go work at a Toyota factory. You do this repetitive movement over, over, over and over and over and that's why I ended up ultimately leaving my initial, uh, initial sports job was because that's what the stuff that I was doing was this repetitive thing, like game program cover, uh, media guide cover, game program cover, media guide cover. And it was just like, I, yeah. I just, that wasn't for me. I wanted to do a lot of different things. Mm, right. Yeah. But, but, you know, at the same time, I'm not knocking people that, that do that. That's if that's for you, then absolutely go do it. I mean, I think it's great work. And, and I, you know, part of me wishes I could just say, I want to make icons every single day for the rest of my life, you know, because I just think things would be so much easier than when like seeing some new technology come out. And in my head being the, uh, excuse me, entrepreneurial guy that I am, I'm thinking like, what, how can I do something and make something for this? (laughs) Oh, Hey, listen, I know exactly what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying. I, I, you know, my, my father-in-law has a, a little pizza shop here in the small town I live in, in Pennsylvania. And, you know, he's been, he's been operating that thing for 50 years. And, you know, sometime about 45 years ago, he perfected his pizza recipe and he's just been doing the same exact thing every single day and been very successful at it. But for, for designers, you know, you, you've got to be brilliant today. And then tomorrow you've got to be brilliant in a completely different way. You can't do the same things over and over again, especially if you're designing identity. You can't, uh, you can't retread uh, work that you've done and, and sold to a previous client. So um, I know exactly what you're saying. It's, it's yeah. a really interesting thing. No, I, I totally agree. And actually, um, episode eight, Darren Crescenzi mentions and he, he, was a, he was in Nike's graphic identity group and now he's at Interbrand. But we had a conversation about visual style and, you know, as an like illustrate, if you want to be an illustrator, it's very good to develop a visual style because the thing is, right. is people are going to hire you for that one thing and they know that you're, they're comfortable with, they've seen the work that you've done. They want to hire you for that one thing. And if you randomly came to them after they hired you and gave them something different, they're going to be like, what? This is, this is not what I hired you to do. I hired you to do that one thing. But I think honestly, if you're going to call yourself as a, as a designer, you need to be able to do many things. And even yeah. if that sometimes includes not being able to physically execute it yourself, I mean, you might need to hire somebody. You might need to art direct something in that particular instance and say, hey, you know what? This is the personality of this brand that we are working on and my visual aesthetic that I can achieve is, is a bit limited here. So I need to actually bring on somebody that can achieve this thing, the visual style that we need, but I know the strategy behind it. So I'm going to help guide that person in staying on strategy. Yeah. I mean, that's, and I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people too. I mean, that's something that, that we do here. We do that a lot. I mean, we, we have lots of help on projects that we do. And a lot of times it's because of the particular creative needs of the project. Uh, Sometimes we can do that in house and sometimes we can't. So, you know, we, we have relationships with lots of great designers out there that, that help us from time to time. Um, when the project requires that particular skill set, you know, so we, I mean, we, we do that, we do that all the time. Right. And in, in my, actually my sort of bread and butter client, 3D lacrosse, um, mm-hmm. you know, they, 
they hire me because they trust me and I give them, you know, what happens is we have a phone call and, and I give them not, not trying to come off as arrogant in any ways, but like I give them thousands of dollars of consulting advice in one phone call. than you know, say like if they hired somebody to do an hourly rate or whatever. And that's just because like of the past, you know, 10, 11 years I've been doing this, I've soaked up so much and learned so many things that I'm able to now regurgitate stuff quicker uh, and in a way that, and explain it in layman's terms in a way that, you know, marketing directors can understand it without being all designery with like, Oh, the typography and blah, 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 you know, like, like without nerding out on the design, but explaining, explaining it in a way that people understand it. And I think that's a very valuable skill to develop over time. And that only comes from practice. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, you know, Adam, I'm curious uh, about, um, you're, you're part of the world. You know, one of the things that I really love about my job is being able to go to lots of different places. Um, I, I've spent time all over the country different with different clients of ours and you know, most of those collegiate clients um, spent lots of time on college campuses. And I'm always fascinated about uh, different parts of the country and the creative culture that exists there. And, and I've been really surprised by a lot of places. Um, we did a project in Boise, Idaho a number of years ago, and it just it just blew me away at the, the creative community there and how design-centric that town is, something that you wouldn't expect. I mean, what's the... Uh, What's the creative temperature of uh, of Lexington or the area or that uh, that you're in that part of that part of Kentucky, if you will? I know uh, I'm familiar with um, with a little bit more familiar with Louisville. Uh, I know that Dan Simon is there in Louisville, probably one of the most talented designers I know. Um, so it's uh, you're you're not alone in in uh, in, in creative um, muscle there in Kentucky, but what's the, what's the local, uh, what's the local creative community? Like? Uh, it's, it's, it's been growing, uh, at a great scale and honestly, and just Dan Simon real quick, just to touch on him. I, I actually have him on deck. I'm, he's one of the guys that I want to interview in person, which is since we're in such close proximity, that's why he hasn't been on the show yet. But, um, Lexington is, you know, f- probably about 10 years ago uh, before Twitter kind of hit pretty hard. Downtown was a little stodgy and there wasn't a whole lot. It was a lot of chain restaurants and, you know, malls and whatever, that type of thing. But I think just like with, with most cities, there's been kind of an influx of people creating things like artisan, you know, food trucks or like, you know, uh, great, great little restaurants. It's become a nice little foodie town, some good craft beer places. And I think what happens is, is you have these creative people that, maybe it starts with beat ups and just like simple, like, Hey, we're just going to do like a tweet up. And then like what happens is, is I think what's been beautiful for Lexington, at least from personal experience is the osmosis that has happened where people meet other people and, and, you know, one person's a, a writer, you know, and then the other person is maybe a designer or something or videographer or something like that. And, and things start to kind of beautifully happen. And that's, that's been happening in Lexington. And I draw a lot of inspiration from Lexington. And of course, things like, um, there are the typical things that I think most cities will sell like Lexington's marketing plans from like the greater level, as far as like, you know, chamber of commerces and things like that, or, or tourism bureaus are always going to be horses, Right. Because that's been kind of the traditional sell. But there's been some sort of boutique things happening around the area. Like there's a couple guys in town that started this thing called Kentucky for Kentucky. And they've they've uh, 
they've been really trying to spotlight people that are doing interesting things that aren't involved in the horse industry, uh, like screen printers and little, you know, artisan shops and, and things like that. And, and seeing people doing stuff like that and really kind of, um, bringing some of that stuff to the area and bringing that stuff to the forefront has been great for me. Uh, but also just being able to kind of take part in that and meet with those people because, you know, at this, even though that I, I work in the sports industry and, and you do too, I think one thing that that's very important is that we don't exist in this vacuum, right? right. Where we have to get out and go to, um, you know, I, 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 I mean, I would attend a fashion show, you know, like I would attend other things sure. that are creative because I think that we can draw inspiration from those things. And Lexington's been doing a really good job of that. So I, I, I love my city. I love my area. And, and that's honestly like why I choose to stay here. And, and I think, you know, obviously working in the sports world, having someone like Kentucky basketball, a successful mm-hmm. program and having mm-hmm. SEC schools visit in football, the Alabamas of the world and that type of thing. Um, that's, that's very fortunate for me, right? Especially from the sports world, because you're going to have Nike executives come into town. You're going to have the big executives of these schools come into town because they have to come here and play or they're meeting with people already. So that's been really cool being able to be in the heart of that. But, you know, I think, um, just like you, and I think we've had this discussion before. I mean, you live in kind of a small town in, in Pennsylvania and, Mm -hmm we don't let our area codes hinder what we can do. Right. And I think when you tend to do that, I think a lot of people tend to do that. Like what's the stuff I can do around here. And when you're starting out, yeah, like go try to do stuff for high schools. If you want to do branding, try to get a local high school. I mean, how many high schools are using professional sports logos that they've just turned green or like into their particular (laughs) color. Right. And, and, and I think teams are, are beginning, at least colleges are beginning to shut that stuff down with cease and desist and things like that. Oh, no so, question. Yeah. you know, go to a high school and say, Hey, go to your alma mater and say, Hey, you know, I want to, I want to rebrand you guys. And you know, chances are they'll let you do it. If you offer to do it pro bono, I guarantee they'll let you do it. But you know, even if you can just go to them and say, Hey, you know, if you can, if you can find me a thousand dollars, I'll do this for you. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a beautiful way to start building stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. Well, Adam, this has been really great. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you having me, man. You've done a great job with this with this whole show, man, and building this brand. Well, thank you. It's I, I work very hard at it. Um, so, uh, so tell us where can uh, where can listeners find you? Uh, yeah, so listeners can reach out to me. The show Twitter account is at Makers of Sport. I keep things very sports focused there. I sort of have broken it out. Uh, and then my personal Twitter account is at T Adam Martin. And I tend to tweet a lot about design and entrepreneurship there. That's not necessarily sports focused. So I sort of have those two different, two different areas. Cool. Great. Well, thanks again, Adam. And, um, I guess we'll go into our final uh, our final credits here, right? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. I I, I do want to say a big thanks for hosting the show. It's been great, and and you know you pitched this idea to me, and honestly, I you know I thought, well, who am I to? Nobody's going to want to hear this story, but uh, you know I, I was I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to go deeper and tell some of the failures and and the lead ups uh, coming in into where we're at now. Absolutely, no, it's been a lot of fun. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate it. So our our next guest, just to wrap up here, is uh, going to be Bethany Heck. I mentioned her earlier on the show. Bethany is a huge baseball fan, and she is the founder and designer of EFIS League, which is a website featuring long-form writing, physical products, 
focusing on baseball, culture, and design. Uh, Bethany has actually become quickly shortlisted as one of my favorite designers. She has a very distinct style. And you can see her work at her dribble page, which is dribble.com slash Bethany Heck. Uh, her history before leaving uh, to pursue another endeavor, which at this particular time is undisclosed. Uh, her daytime gig was as a, was a designer at IBM's Austin, Texas Mobile Innovation Lab, where she produced beautiful work for the brand amongst other designers down there in their state-of-the-art 50,000-square-foot design studio in in Austin, Texas. Uh, Again, just want to say big thanks to my good friend and mentor, Joe Bosack, for guest hosting today. Be sure to follow him on Twitter, at jbosack, and uh, also view his work, joebosack.com. We'll be back on schedule next week for halftime. The episode I am going to be talking about is giving sort of a bird's eye view on pricing strategies for freelancing. You know, everything from like hourly rate to value-based pricing. And and just, it really all depends, like as we said earlier, to figuring out what works for you and what works for your particular clients. So take those things with, you know, as a grain of salt. Don't take those strictly for their word because like we said earlier different things work for different people lastly please take two minutes of your time and write a review on itunes hours and hours of work go into the show as i mentioned many times before and i have decided against the business model of selling your ears to sponsors in order to keep the content free so basically i've decided to gift this quality content to you as a way of giving back to the industry. If you'd like to reward me for my hard work, you can join the upcoming community, which I'll discuss a little bit more in the future. Or uh, I'm actually in develop uh, talks with my developer as we speak on that. Or more immediately, you can go to makersofsport.com slash iTunes, hit that five star and leave a review. These reviews actually help get the show discovered uh, by other creatives that want to do work in this niche of business, and it helps drive the quality and professionalism of the sports industry as we work to move it upward together. I just want to say thanks to those of you that have already left reviews. I try to thank each of you individually through Twitter if I recognize the handle the the username on iTunes and it corresponds with the Twitter account. Uh, Big thanks to those of you that have shared the show, retweeted the show. Recently, we were actually featured in iTunes new and noteworthy section amongst the likes of Grantland and Serial, those major podcasts. This is definitely not a small feat. I'm very proud that you guys have helped us to get there uh, because there are literally hundreds of thousands of shows in iTunes. And getting recognized as one of the best podcasts in the app store is an absolutely amazing accomplishment that, uh, you know, honestly, I thought may never happen because of the number, especially for a niche show like this one. As always, I'll accept likes, retweets, ratings, and reviews on other platforms such as Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever you happen to be listening into this right now. And as mentioned earlier, I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter and Dribble, and the show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week.